Morning. Well, I really hope you will pray for David to get some rest. You know why he's tired, right? Uh, because he's been filling the pulpit for me for weeks now. <laughs> that can wear a man out. You know what I'm saying? Seriously, I better explain that sign. I've been married 20 years now. Come, it'll be 20 years in June. But I was thinking about the message this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. And this is a two-part series that I'm entitling, Now What? And the reason I've entitled it this is because I was thinking long and hard after William and Katie announced their engagement last week. How many of you were here for that? Probably most of you, huh? So William and Katie are right over there. So I was thinking, William and Katie... You know, after the excitement of the engagement, and after the wedding is over with, and after you get back from your honeymoon, then you really have a question to ask yourself, now what? How do I go from all the excitement and all the liveliness of the engagement process and the wedding to now just settling in and living as man and wife? And that is a question for all of us this morning because I think it pertains to the Christian faith as well. It is a picture of us that when we, we go through the conversion process, if you will, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of zeal early in that union with Christ, and then after that, many believers are left to think, well, now what? Now what? Now what does the Christian life look like for me? What am I supposed to do in the Christian life? What do I focus my attention on how do I live my life as a believer? And so this morning, that is what we're going to be talking about. If you want to turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 13 here, and I'll just read through the text, and then, and then we'll try to have a go at it here. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, 
The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So look back at the text with me. I'm just going to run through here with you. This There are five commands here in the text that I want to lift out, and this is what we're going to be focusing on for the next couple of weeks. And commands or imperatives are essentially what you're supposed to do. And so uh, as you look at verse 13 here, uh, unfortunately in a translation, a lot of the times they they translate things as imperatives or commands when they're not. And I'll, I'll explain that as we go along here. But look at verse 13. The command here is to fix your hope. Fix your hope. Down in verse 15, the second command of the five is be or become holy yourselves. Down in verse 17, the idea of conducting yourself in fear. Conduct yourself in fear. Down in verse 22, fervently love one another. Fervently love one another. And over in chapter 2, verse 2, long for, long for the pure milk of the word. So those are the commands that are actually in the text. Everything else around them is sort of window dressing. And so we're going to try to explain that as we go through here. But but in, in essence, Peter has left believers five pursuits that are going to help us evaluate and determine our priorities in life. Uh, we need to think through how we're living our lives, where we're focusing our energy, what are we spending our time doing as believers. We need to We need to strategize, we need targets, we need pursuits. And so these five pursuits are based on these five commands here that Peter has given us. And notice at the the very first word in the text, you see that in verse 13, the therefore? And when we see therefore, what do we do? We always ask, what's it there for, right? Well, it's to tell us that these five commands that are now inciting us to do something are based on everything he has just said from verse 3 all the way over to verse 12. In other words, based on the glorious free grace of God, which is open to both Jews and Gentiles, the church should now pursue these five things. And so this is what we are to do as believers. And the first pursuit is there in verse 13, you see it. It is the idea of having a fixed hope. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question this morning. How long do you think a person can live without hope? How long can a person live without hope? You know, it's no small coincidence that Peter starts with hope in this text because the church is being heavily persecuted at this point. The church is being persecuted by evil men. And believers were experiencing tremendous loss for the sake of the name. Yet the sure hope of Christ enabled them there and us today to to endure any trial that we may be facing. Peter knew that. Peter knew that. Here believers are encouraged, and notice the word completely. 
Don't just brush by that word. It's right there in the text. Completely fix your hope on this. Uh, the idea is teleos in the Greek. It's the idea of, of perfection or completeness or maturity. It's the, the idea of, of locked and loaded and fixated on the hope of Christ's return. Uh, the tense of the verb here carries uh, the idea of an urgency with it. Uh, in other words, uh, Peter is begging. Peter is urging them. He's in as strong as possible way. Fix your hope there, not on your surroundings here. So let me just say that again, the the idea here, uh, and to teach a, a little grammar this morning, if you don't mind, and that is that uh, the way Greek operates, there's usually participles around the main verb. Okay, so there's a main verb, and then there's the in words around it. And as I said, uh, we tend to translate them as imperatives or commands when they're really not. So in other words, uh, look at verse 13. You should read it sort of this way. Preparing your minds for action, keeping sober in spirit, fix your hope. That's the idea. So it's like uh, Simon uh, led worship this morning by playing the piano and leading with the singing. And as he did that, he led worship. Uh, it describes, if you will, the manner in which the verb or the command is supposed to take place. In other words, uh, we're going to look at two components that I think are necessary for biblical hope this morning. And I guess that's why I'm pointing this out. And the first one of these uh, first two participles, or in words, if you will, is preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. And the idea here is literally, uh, in the Greek, the idea of girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. You didn't know your mind had loins this morning, did you? But that's the idea. There's a, there's a real seriousness to this word. Uh, and, and the tense of it calls for sort of a decisive, one-time call to action. Like, like, prepare now. Prepare your minds for action. This is, this is how you are going to have biblical hope. In the New Testament, it carries the idea of, uh, you know, if they were fishermen and they were wearing, I don't know, what do you call it, a, a robe, I guess? They're wearing a robe, so they would reach down and they would pull it up and they would tuck it into their belt here. And they would prepare themselves to run or to labor. And so Peter is saying that's the idea. Gather your garments up uh, so that they won't impede you. Gather up the loins of your mind. Gird yourself up so that you will not be inhibited in your ability to run. Okay? So here Peter is encouraging believers to to just put out of their mind once and for all uh, those things which would impede spiritual progress. Uh, just get them out of your mind. Um, decisively put away the entanglements of your mind that trip you up. So it's a call to decisive action. The second phrase there, he says, uh, the second requirement, if you will, is keeping sober in spirit. You see that? Uh, and this usually carries the idea of abstaining from wine, but obviously that's not what Peter is talking about here. He's talking metaphorically, and he's saying, uh, be mentally alert. Maintain a sense of mental alertness. Um, Christ could come at any moment. Uh, believers need to live with sobriety. They're in the last days. 
We're in the last days. Christ could come at any time. So we need to remain mentally alert and not in some sort of sluggish stupor about what's going on around us. That's the idea. Uh, this word, rather than a decisive one-time action, is being used as more of an umbrella sort of idea, more of a qualitative idea of your mindset about all of life. It's a, it's a sobriety, if you will. It's uh, not allowing yourself to be slothful, sluggardly, just in, a, in some sort of stupor, rather than being... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Alert. Just alert. Right? Now, both of these activities are, as I said, subordinate to the main command of fix your hope completely. So, in other words, a, a believer needs to decisively make up their mind to put away all the clutter that entangles them, and they need to live with a certain sobriety about life and Christ's return. Uh, they need to fix their hope completely on Christ, and this is how they do it. Does that make sense? You have to get rid of the clutter, and you have to fix your hope on Christ with a sobriety. Uh, turn over to chapter 4, verse 7. I think he kind of says the same thing over here. 4, 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. There the idea is keeping your mind engaged in prayer while you're fixated on your hope in Christ's return. Chapter 5 and verse 8, same idea. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So you see the idea of sobriety, very important part of the Christian life. So that's the first component, the requirements of hope, if you will. The second component is the reason for hope. And again, it's another participle, but, but this describes the grace uh, that believers can expect upon Christ's return. You see, he says, um, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that? And the idea here is that it's the, the action is describing what type of grace in other words, it's the, the being brought to you grace that you're going to get when Christ comes. Uh, in other words, if I could say it this way, it's on its way and it's virtually in our possession. There, there is again this intense urgency to it that we're just about to receive it. It's being brought to us. It's just about here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, this is uh, the word apocalypse. That's where we get the word apocalypse from. And it's, it's clearly a reference to the blessed hope of Christ's return, which for believers is everything for us, right? Titus 2 talks about we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because when Christ returns, that means he will take us to be with him where he is and then wrath will be poured out on the whole earth, which we will not have to participate in. But at the same time, we're being taken up. Wrath is being taken out on those who have persecuted the church. It is the blessed hope of believers. It is the parousia, or the return of Christ, for his church. And the same expression is used over in 
chapter 1, verse 7. You see, he says, so, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same phrase. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, you could look over there too. I'm not going to take you there now. All this to say this, right? I, I say all that to say this. Uh, we need to drink some black coffee this morning and sober up. Right? You know, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, we need to drink some black coffee and we need to get out of the stupor that we are in. Uh, Christianity in general, us personally, we need to fix our hope, lock on to the target of Christ's return. And beloved, we get so distracted, so apathetic, so um, slumbering, if I could say it that way, that we are just not thinking about it. We are not ready. We are not ready. Uh, Peter, again, uses the word completely. How many in this room would say you are completely fixed on the hope of Christ's return? See, I, I don't think I could say that. I don't think I could say that. But that's what Peter is calling us to. Uh, time is running out. Christ could return at any moment. He's bringing grace with him. And so we need to be focusing there. Not the here and now, the there and then. Right? So let me ask you a question this morning. As I think about this, the implications of this, or say the applications of this, are you hopeful for the return of Christ? Is that something you look forward to? I heard one yes. Anybody else? Are you hopeful? Because some believers actually, in talking with them, they actually are not looking forward to Christ's return. They're dreading it. And as I think about that, I think of some of the reasons maybe why somebody might dread the return of Christ. Maybe you can think of them with me. Uh, perhaps uh, too much love for this life. Right? Too much love for the things of this life. Uh, maybe there are unresolved issues that need to be dealt with in your life. Maybe there are broken relationships that need attention. And so, Christ can't return now. I've got to fix this. I've got to make this right. So I would regret it if Christ came and I hadn't dealt with this. Maybe you're struggling with shame. Maybe you're struggling with shame over a particular sin issue. And the, the thought of having to face Christ face-to-face -face is a little bit scary knowing that you're going to have to give an account for it. Thus, we need to rid ourselves of the things that clutter our relationship with God. Beloved, those things need to be, they need to be cleared away. They need to be dealt with. You need to prepare your mind and you need to live with a sober expectation that Christ could return today. Right now. Any time. I want you to write this down. We don't want to hide from him. We want to hope in him. We don't, we don't want to hide from him. We want to hope in him. The glorious return should provide you with strength to carry on in the face of difficult life circumstances. Not something you should fear. It should be a strength. It should be a hope. 
It should be a fixed hope. Right? The second pursuit, verses 14 to 16, see that there in the text, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this is not new revelation, is it? God is holy, thus he demands what from his children? Holiness. It's, to live a Christian life in a non-holy way is a non-sequitur. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And there are really two reasons here in the text why we need to live a holy life. And the first one is that in verse 14, our relationship demands our obedience. Our relationship with God demands our obedience. You see in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. You see that? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So, the idea here is having been brought into a relationship with God uh, through his son Jesus Christ, you are now his child and you can no longer use ignorance as an excuse for sin. You don't have that luxury anymore. Uh, God has revealed himself to you um, you know what he expects. If you don't know what he expects, it's probably because you're not reading the scriptures. And so you have an obligation. You have a duty to do what God expects. And in fact, when you look at the biblical evidence, it's clear that even sins committed in ignorance still accumulated guilt. You're still guilty of the crime, even in ignorance. So it's a good idea to be informed uh, even the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, they made allowance for sins committed in ignorance, right? What they did not allow for were sins that were done blatantly. It's an interesting thing. All this to say, again, implicit in biblical revelation is the idea that we are, we are obligated to learn God's will and to live in it. To obey it. The, the relationship is, is foremost in, in the front of God's mind here, though, as he's talking through Peter. The text literally reads emphatically, as children obedient, do this or don't do this. And in the Greek, children means children. So you guys are God's children, right? Now, has there ever been a time where God has not required obedience from his children? I mean, you can read your Old Testament, right? Uh, turn back to Deuteronomy 6. I'll just, let me just point this out to you here. I don't want to assume. Deuteronomy 6. He says, now this is the commandment, verse 1, of the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God 
to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that, it may, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So the idea implicit in that is not just hearing, but doing. And the great Shema of Israel is right there in verse 4, right? Shema in Hebrew just means hear. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your literally muchness. Uh, This is what God expects of you. Your relationship to him requires obedience. Uh, It's no different with Jesus either, right? You could look at Luke 6.46 and following. Again, I don't have time to go there, but I will take you to John 15.14. John 15.14. Jesus there says to his disciples, you are my friends, and there's an if statement there, if you do what I command you. You're my friends if you obey. So in fact, the requirements of the Mosaic Law were put there for, for people who were already saved. And what do I mean by that? It means that the law was given to saved people, not to save them. Does that make sense? In other words, they had already been redeemed as a nation. God gave the law to Israel so that they would know how to relate to him as his children. He did not give it to them to sanctify them or to save them. He gave it to them for a relationship, to know how he should be approached. And so uh, God has always been after a relationship with his children. It's not new information. And the way that we relate to God is by obedience. Obedience to his will. Deuteronomy 5.29, you don't have to turn there, but he says, oh, oh, that Israel would have such a heart in them that they would obey all my commandments and my statutes that it may go well with them. Uh, It has always been God's desire that his people would just delight in obeying him. Now, how many of you are parents in here? Is it hard for you to imagine this? That you wouldn't just delight if your children would just obey you? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it just please your heart to no end? Right? And it's the same for God. And, and notice that he says, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Uh, again, uh, participles are window dressing. This is another participle. And so the idea here is that this is not actually a command in and of itself, but it's, it's part of the command to become holy. Uh, it's actually describing how you become holy by not being conformed to your former lusts. Okay? Is it actually describing how you become holy? By not being conformed to former lusts, which you indulged in before you knew better. But now, you're not ignorant anymore, are you? You know better. You know better, and so the idea is you cannot go back to the old way of living. You cannot go back to the old lusts. 
the old things that used to have a grip on your soul. Look over at uh, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6. Just a reiteration of this same idea. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Well, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, uh, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they will live in the spirit according to the will of God. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, you had your opportunity to indulge the flesh. Uh, That's over with now. That's over with now. Now you are in Christ, and the rest of the world ought to be surprised by the fact that you're not participating with them in such things. You see that? Verse 4, in all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses. They should be surprised. Paul says over in Ephesians 4, you can turn there, 4, 17 to 19. He says, very similar, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to, every, uh, over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn that. That is not acceptable anymore. Back to First Peter. The idea of being conformed, conformed here, I think... It means to assume, if I could say it this way, a certain form or a shape of something. So what does it mean to be conformed in the context? I take it to mean not allowing your former lusts to continue to shape your character. Not allowing your former lusts to do that. As his children, God demands our obedience. Right? Reason number two. Our response declares our allegiance. Our response, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Very strong contrast here in the Greek, is about as strong as you can get. Uh, It's the idea that you are not to act like this, but instead you are to do this. No more of this, just this. Not being conformed anymore to former lusts, but becoming, literally becoming holy. Becoming holy. 
In other words, uh, not being conformed is the manner in which you become holy along with the imitation of God himself. No more of this, but this. Does that make sense? Uh, you could read it this way. Uh, this would be how I would translate it, but not being conformed to former lusts, become holy in all your behavior according to the standard of the one who called you because he himself is holy. Obviously, this is quoted from Leviticus. You read this several places in the book of Leviticus, 1144, 19.2, 27. Um, Jesus picked it up over in the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor David will probably get there, there in Matthew 5.48. Uh, Jesus chose to use the word perfect. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Same idea, same concept, holiness. Uh, notice the word, a little word in front of it. How much of your behavior? All. All your behavior. All in the Greek means? All. You got it. You guys are Greek experts, I'm telling you. That is the goal. And I would, I would translate it this way. I would say not every single behavior, but all areas of behavior. All areas of your behavior should come under submission to God. This is, in essence, the put-off, put-on model of Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, right? You are to put off the wrong behaviors and not just stop doing those, but now you need to go to the scriptures, you need to renew your mind, you need to see the thing the way God sees it, and then you need to put on righteous behavior in its place. You have to treat the mind like a garden. And what happens in a garden when weeds come up? Well, you send your children out to weed the garden. No, you go out and you weed the garden and you cultivate it and you put plants there and you keep weeding it so that the weeds don't keep coming back, right? You have to deal with it continually. By the way, you will never fully arrive at this. I'll just say that right now. You will never fully arrive at this. Somebody once said that we are human becomings, not human beings. We are human becomings, and I think that's absolutely true. So let me just ask you a question this morning. Have your affections changed since coming to faith in Christ? Have your desires changed? Do you still desire your former lusts, if I could say it that way? In fact, are they former or are they present? Do you understand? Are, are you still... Uh, is Peter saying here to uh, put away your present lusts? No, he, he's saying put your former lusts away, which were yours in ignorance. But you're not ignorant anymore. So they should not be present day lusts anymore. That's the point. Uh, do you still desire those things more than God? As his child... Those affections, those desires, those cravings, they need to be replaced with godly desires, godly cravings, uh, godly ambition. Everything should now funnel through the grid of your relationship with God. And the question is, are you still enslaved to those things which were supposed to have once held you, or are they still holding you? Do they still have a grip on your soul? 
And as we said before, are, uh, do others look at you and are they surprised? Are they surprised that you don't participate with them? Are they surprised by your rejection of worldliness? Or do they think you blend? Do they think you blend? So your response to this truth declares where your allegiances lie. Our relationship demands our obedience. Our response declares our allegiance. So the first two pursuits that we've looked at this far, thus far are a fixed hope and a holy life. Third of the five, Peter tells us that we are to have a fearful conduct. A fearful conduct. This is the third pursuit. And there's a conditional statement in verse 17. Uh, you notice that? It says, If, Father, you call the one who impartially judges according to the work of each, then in fear the time of your sojourn on earth conduct yourselves. So it's an if-then proposition. If you're going to call God your Father, then you better live in fear during your time on earth. That's, that's the material point here. In fear is emphatic in this statement. It's, it's the idea of, in fear, conduct yourselves. It's, it's forward for emphasis. And the idea of conduct yourselves, this is not like what we see over in Philippians 2, where it's the idea of conduct yourself as a citizen. The word over there is politumai. And it's the idea of living like a citizen of, of the Greek culture. Uh, and Paul there uses that word to describe how you're supposed to behave like heavenly citizens. That's not what's going on here. What he's saying here is, uh, this is a, a sort of a passive command. It's, it's with a reflexive idea. And the idea is to conduct yourselves or to live or to dwell um, in, a, in a repetitive sort of action. In other words, um, during the time that you conduct yourselves or live here on earth or, or live day-to-day -day life, um, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live in fear. I had a hard time with this one. This is a, a different sort of concept, right? Uh, fearing God is a different concept for us, right? Jesus is our boyfriend now. Uh, we live in a different culture, we live in a different time. The reverence and fear of God is very distant from our minds. It's more like, you know, hey God, he's our bud, you know. It's, it's, not, it's not the idea that it was when this was written, I don't believe. And it, and it begs the question, this verse really begs the question of whether or not we're to fear God himself or if we're just to live in a fearful way during our time on earth. And I think, as I've studied it, as I've looked at the various positions, I believe it's the former. Again, the if-then nature of the statement seems to indicate that if you're going to call God your Father, then you better live in fear. And that seems to be the idea that Peter is communicating here. And there's two reasons for it right here in the text that I think he's after. And reason number one is in verses 18 and 19. And it's the idea that our faith must rely on what God has done on our behalf. Our faith 
really has to rely on what God has done for us, not on what we can do for ourselves. That's the point. Uh, he has provided the sacrifice that was needed for our redemption. So it's kind of a, a scary proposition to rest in that as a sufficient payment for sin, right? We'd like to add a little something to that. We'd like to say, well, maybe if I just do a little bit more, I can, I can contribute somehow, can't I? I can, I can make it a little bit better of a sacrifice. I can just live a better life, and that'll be more pleasing to God. Uh, and so, uh, faith and hope. Uh, drop down to verse 21. Let me, let me show you this here. There's a little bit of a, a summary conclusion statement at the end of verse 21 that if you read backwards from there, I think it gives you the idea of what Peter is after in this text. And, and you see that there? He says, verse 21, uh, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And then he says, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see that? So what that tells me is that Peter is looking backwards and verses 18 and 19 are talking about your faith and what God has provided there. And he's talking about your hope being in Christ's resurrection. And so that's, that's how we understand verses 18 to 21. In other words, Peter is talking about faith in God's provision of Christ, verses 18 and 19, and hope in Christ's resurrection, verses 20 and 21. In other words, our faith must rely on what God has done on our behalf in the sacrifice of Christ. And our hope must rest in what God will do on our behalf in the resurrection of Christ. You see, he says, uh, having known here, having known, it's a, it's a perfect verb. And the, it means that the action began in the past and it has ongoing present results. In other words, you have come to know and you still know what? They know what? Well, they have come to know that they were not redeemed with corruptible or perishable things like gold or silver um, out of the futile conduct delivered by their fathers or that which was handed down to them by their forebearers. Um, it's, all it's talking about is human traditions. You've not been redeemed by human traditions, by silver or gold, uh, but strong contrast, you've been redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, a, a pure and undefiled sacrifice. That's what you've been bought with, not gold or silver. Gold or silver is worthless compared to Christ. Now you have to think, you have to put on, I mean we still value gold and silver today, but you have to go back to their mindset. I mean the most precious valuable metals known at the time were what? Gold and silver. Right? So for them, uh, Peter says, they're perishable in contrast with the blood of Christ, which is precious. And precious doesn't mean cute. Precious means valuable. Semi-precious metals, precious metals. He's talking about the value here of Christ. He was a pure, sacrificial lamb, uh, unblemished and spotless, undefiled and pure, the perfect sacrifice. Isaiah 53, I mean, we don't have to think very long and hard, right? Isaiah 53, Christ was that lamb that stood in our place. Revelation 5, 6, he, 5, 6 he's the, the lamb 
slain from the foundation of the world, right? Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb. And so what's the point? I mean, why should this cause us to fear God? Think about it. Why would this cause us to fear God? Well, because God is both the one who, and I want you to listen to this and write it down. God is the one who both judges men's work and he's the one who provided the only acceptable work. Does that make sense? Everybody is going to be evaluated for their work, but nobody's work will measure up. So God provided the work in his own son, and that is what's acceptable. So there's nothing you can contribute to the work. It's only acceptable because God did it. So here's the point. Your faith really resides with God and with God alone. He is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. There's nothing you can contribute other than the sin that made it necessary. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, the famous old dispensationalist, he says this, Saving faith must thus be defined as a voluntary turning from all hope and grounds based on self-merit and assuming an attitude of expectancy toward God, trusting him to do a perfect saving work based only on the merit of Christ. That's saving faith. That's all you got. That's all you got. So this morning, let me just ask you, are you relying on your own merit to please God? What is your faith in? Faith needs an object, and it is a fearful proposition to entrust ourselves completely to what somebody else is going to do for us, right? To just rely on that alone. We think, well, I've got to be able to do something. No, you can't. There is nothing you can add. Uh, understand that any little bit of human effort is like putting red paint into a white paint base. You know what I mean? What's going to happen to the white paint? It's contaminated. It's going to turn pink. Any amount that you try to contribute to the grace of God in Christ is going to contaminate the faith alone proposition. It is faith alone or is not at all. Our faith must rely on what God has done on our behalf. And that's a fearful proposition. Second reason we should fear God is our hope must rest on what God will do on our behalf. Again, going back to that summary statement, uh, he says our faith and our hope is in Christ, right? Faith and hope are in God. Well, hope in Christ's resurrection. God will raise Christ. God raised Christ up, and he will raise us up. There's a more subtle contrast going on here. Uh, Christ was foreknown on the one hand, and uh, before the foundation of the world, and manifested on the other hand in the last days for you. Uh, there's an there's a on the one hand and on the other hand idea going on here. And don't miss the parallels, I guess is the point. Uh, first, uh, believers are foreknown before the foundation of the world, chapter 1, verse 2. And Christ was foreknown, one twenty, 
right? Uh, believers are sojourning here for a time, 117, and Christ was manifested for a time. Uh, Christ died, was raised, and was given glory. And here's where our hope is. Importantly, believers will die one day, and their hope is in the fact that, like Christ, they will be raised one day and given glory because of their faith union with him. You see the, see the parallels there? Your faith union with Christ guarantees that you will be raised up on the last day. Our hope is in the resurrection. God will raise us up. Our hope must rest in what God will do on our behalf in the future, namely the resurrection. The resurrection to everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, you don't have to turn there. But he says, if Christ has not been raised, this is Paul talking, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, uh, the Apostle Paul, in speaking of the rapture and the resurrection, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Uh, you can grieve with those who have hope because why? The rapture and the resurrection of the dead is coming when Christ returns. I don't know who said it, author unknown, but he said Christianity begins where all the religions of the world end, at death, and it starts with the resurrection. All the other religions, I don't care what they have, but nobody has come back from the dead but Christ. Nobody. And in Christ and in the resurrection is our hope. Luke 12, 4 through 7. I'm just going to turn you there just to round out my thought on this here. Luke 12, 4 through 7. This is an intriguing passage. He says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered, are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more value than many sparrows. Interesting contrast here, huh? Do you see that? He says, fear the one who can cast your body into hell, but don't fear. Don't fear, because you're more valuable to God than a little sparrow. And what's the difference between those two statements? It's faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ. If you have placed faith in Christ, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Death is scary for me. I'm going to confess this to you this morning. I am hopeful, and I believe what the Scriptures teach about Jesus Christ and about the resurrection. And I have placed faith in that. But death scares me. Anybody else? Okay, I'm alone in this. Thanks, Jim. 
you know, you come face to face with this reality at funerals. It is a scary proposition to swing out into eternity holding on to nothing but faith in Christ. What lies on the other side of the grave? What lies on the other side? Uh, the only hope for us is the resurrection. The only hope is that this is not the end. Death is not the final thing. There is hope beyond the grave. And we live by faith that after death, God will one day raise us up again and give us glory. Right? That's what we're banking on. We have to believe by faith that the resurrection is true. And that it will be true for everyone who is united to Christ by faith. If it's not real, then this is just a game and our faith is worthless. Our faith must rely on what God has done on our behalf. Our hope must rest on what God will do on our behalf. So these are three of five pursuits that I think will help us evaluate and determine our priorities in life. A fixed hope, a holy life, a fearful conduct. How are you doing on those things? How are you doing? As you are figuring out what the Christian life is supposed to look like, I hope this will just give you a good head start in the right direction. Let's pray. Our God and Father, it is only now that we can pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. Our Father, may your spirit cause us to change where change is needed. May your spirit enable us to make changes where they are needed. Father, may we really fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of our Savior. Father, may we live lives that are holy and set apart for you. Father, may we indeed conduct ourselves in fear during our time here on earth. Father, we want to be pleasing to you, and your scripture tells us to do these things, and so we pray that we would give ourselves to them and think on them throughout this week as we live a life uh, in attempt to be pleasing to you. We thank you in Christ's name.